0: Hi, I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew. And we're here at The Slowdown's New York headquarters. You're listening to Time Sensitive, a podcast where we profile curious and courageous people in business, the arts, and beyond who have found a distinct perspective on time.
1: Welcome to season three of time sensitive. If you've listened to the podcast before, you'll know we care deeply about time and how we spend it and how we market, which is why we're excited about our season three sponsor, a German watchmaker, a ah, Lange and Zuna that cares deeply about these things too.
0: One of the things we learned about Longa, and it's a reason that for us, the brand resonates so much, is that they make every single part of the movement by hand. To achieve this, they even assemble all the parts twice, truly taking the time to make something of great quality and lasting value.
1: Yeah, slowness is in their DNA. Longa was founded 175 years ago, and they've been slowly refining their micromechanical technologies over a long time. You know, we talk about this a lot on the podcast, we tend to think of technology today as something that's very fast, obsolete quickly, but it's really nice to see how to get to a level of precision, to do things as well as they do them, it actually requires so much time and care.
0: It's because of this that Longa makes so much sense as our partner. Like us, they believe in thoughtfulness, in slowing down, and in being present at a time in which our attention spans seem to be shrinking. We're grateful for their support, which is helping us bring you
1: this podcast weekly. And speaking of things we bring to you weekly, we've also got this newsletter organized around the five senses, which if you haven't signed up, we encourage you to do so on the Slowdown website. You can subscribe at slowdown.tv. Now about the episode. Spencer, this week you interviewed the fashion designer, Gabriella Hurst. What did you guys talk about?
0: Yeah, so Gabby and I started basically with her early upbringing in rural Uruguay and discussed her path all the way to New York City, where today she is one of the most lauded and talked about fashion designers.
1: Yeah, I I first heard about her when she did the first carbon neutral fashion show. Right, which was last
0: fall. And she's now just done it again for Fashion Week a few weeks ago. And, you know, only five years into her business, she's really built a company that not only has sustainability at its core um, in terms of its values, but it She has created a new sustainable model for a fashion label in general, I think. So
1: I assume you got into the new definition of luxury.
0: Exactly. Which connects very much to sustainability and is something that she also doesn't have a uh, marketing speak definition for. She's very specific in how she defines sustainability. Uh, We also got into philanthropy, which is something she and her husband do a lot of. And of course, we talked about time. You know, slowness is at the core of her company. And she talks about how time literally infiltrates every single thing she does. Really excited about this episode. This is
1: Spencer and Gabriella Hurst.
0: Today on the podcast, we've got Gabriella Hurst, the fashion designer. Welcome, Gabriella.
2: Thank you for having me here.
0: Yes, it's so great to have you. I wanted to start on the subject of ranching, which maybe, to those who know, you might seem an obvious place to start, because that's really Mm -hmm. where your life began. But ranching life, there's something, especially when it comes to time, very special. There's like an earthly rhythm to ranching life. So I was wondering if you could kind of talk about that. How did you start to think about time on the ranch as a kid?
2: I think it's a great observation about the timing in ranching life, especially because in my mom's side is going to be 170 years that they've been in the same spot. Being from the new world, 170 years is is a bit of time compared to trees is nothing that been there, but there is this familiarity and there's this sense of calmness and of things not really changing. My mom still is off the grid. She refuses to be on the grid. And it hasn't really changed much since I grew up in in that ranch. As a kid, time was all we had, which is so ironic because now it's like time is the one thing I don't have, the <laughs> ultimate luxury. But as a kid, it was especially spending all my summers there, it was all I had. So of course in the mornings I had to go up and uh, get in the saddle and go cattle herding and I will be in my mind somewhere else where there was obviously a great adventure happening in front of me, but my mind was in some sort of fantasy. But it it was always this expansion of the days would feel very uh, long Mm. and there was a lot of room for, for fantasy and for play. I played all day because there was no TV, there was radio, but there was books and it was just play. And so I did, I used to perform a lot for myself and entertain myself. And, and so, yes, time was, I was rich in time.
0: Mm. I want to talk about energy too and, and light, because when you're on the ranch, obviously, yeah. you're living in a world of natural light but you're kind of off the grid. And when the generator's out, there's no... And that obviously connects to this sort of conversation of time. How did that sort of borderline...
2: And it changes with the seasons too, right? Mm. Because during the winter, those days are really short. So my dad would wake up in the winter really, really early because you have to maximize the light. So I'm talking like three o'clock to be like kind of ready to saddle like (laughs) four thirty-five. And then you break for lunch, right? You come back from the field and then you you eat your lunch and then siesta. Like siesta was like religion and that's all seasons. You had siesta. And in the summers, the siestas were even longer because it was really hot during the, the, the lunch. So you would then work till you had sunlight, uh, a bit more of sunlight. They would come have dinner And then uh, the generators were up for less than an hour Mm. and then go to bed, (laughs) repeat.
0: How do you think these sort of rhythms of the ranch have informed you internally or or how you sort of live your life now as as a a busy New Yorker?
2: As an anxiety stress disorder, a New Yorker. The number one the thing that informs is the rhythm with nature because we are adapting to nature all the time in the ranch because you're really exposed to the element. I mean, I've seen lighting when I was a kid, I was really scared of lighting. When you're in the vast emptiness and you see lighting, you see the force. And I've seen like a house be struck by lighting. My dad's ranch was struck by lighting. You know, it's like you see the power mm. and you see the force. So I am extremely respectful of nature because I, I understand the force of nature. And even if we're in this uh, Anthropocene geological period, we're going to make our mark with plastic in the strata and uranium waste in the strata but we're we're going to lose the battle <laughs> that's mm. like done because mm. if you think about the 4 billion years the earth's been here and we as a species around 200,000 years i mean it's over so i have an innate knowledge of the strength of nature And the force, the real force of nature from growing up there and following these rhythms. Mm. So I think that's the number one thing that
0: informed me. What was your interaction like with the animals on the ranch?
2: My biggest connection has always been with horses. Um, I grew up with so many animals, like so many dogs and so many, like, I'm not like the one that sees the dogs and goes like, how cute, because like, there's always been around. (laughs) But horses, it's always like the number one connection. And the animals we breed are like in my mom's they're like her pride is the genetics right the genetics of breeding for multi-generational and like she loves her cattle to be healthy and well fed and like the worst thing that can happen is when we have droughts and like the desperation but not for only the loss of life but not seeing the animals happy it's 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 we know it's grass-fed organic as long as i know it you work with nature in that sense
0: Mm. Yeah, you're learning from the land.
2: Yeah, it's you follow the rhythms. And what we've been noticing is that things have shifted forward. You know, things that used to happen in December now are happening mm-hmm. in January. And there we're in the Southern Hemisphere. So it's right now is the summer.
0: Yeah, I mean, it makes me think about speed and, and the speed of our times and how it's really pushing forward everything, including the weather.
2: Yes, I I have the sensation that things are going so fast right now, all the time, and I don't know if it's just me, or it's like, I just feel it's so fast, and I have every time less time to see people I love, hang out with my friends that even last year, and I was able to see more than I don't see them now. My free time has kind of become limited and limited and limited.
0: There's a ranching phrase that I saw you reference in an mm-hmm. in article in Monocle magazine. It's slowly through the stones, yes. which which basically refers to how you deal with adversity, yeah. being the stones. Could you talk about that phrase and how you yeah. sort of...
2: We were told this when galloping, right? So it's a, despacio por las piedras. So. You know, as a kid, you want to just gallop, da, 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 go at full speed, right? Because that's where, like, you get more adrenaline. And, you know, you're taught when you grow up in a ranch, like, the things you should do not to kill yourself because something happens to you, you're like two hours and a half <laughs> away from a closest city. So be smart. So slowly through the stones because you fall from a horse at a speed, you fall and that head hits your stone and you're done, that basalt stone, you're done. So slowly for the stones is like a saying that became like a way of of, of life where Mm -hmm. things are, now is a good way of this period that we're living. It's like, there's so much things to observe that can be very dangerous that you should go slowly Mm -hmm. instead of fast.
1: Mm.
0: You grew up in this world of the utilitarian. How has that led you to thinking about your clothes from a perspective of pragmatism, of of everyday wear, of things that last?
2: Yeah, it's informed my desire for quality, because at the end is what it is. I really thought about why I am so attracted to things of quality. It, it is because things have to be made well to last and to endure. And so I grew up with things that were, were made to last and to endure, not necessarily from an ostentatious point of view, but from a Quality utilitarian aspect, and I'm always trying to recreate that in what I do.
0: Mm. Well, maybe get back to the ranch. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) I want to talk about your mom, though. Who? who... Oh my god, my mom! (laughs) I know that she's been incredibly influential. You said, like, undeniably, that your your mom is like your greatest influence. She is not an ordinary woman no. by any means. She's she competed in rodeo when she was eighteen. She's a practicing Buddhist. She's yeah. a Taekwondo master. She's she's a fifth generation cattlewoman. <laughs> Tell me about your mom and and the influence she's had on you.
2: She had such an incredible influence in the sense that. And I have to give you the context, too, because mm-hmm. if you don't understand the context, if you're like, okay, this is a mom growing up in the West Village in New York in the same time period, you'll be like, okay, strange, but not that strange. It was the Dictatory Periodship in Uruguay. Uh, I was born during that period in 1976. Things were extremely conservative, like conservative. And this was a very much a patriarchy society, a macho society. And the fact that I have... As one of my first reference as a kid, it's like, and I actually, I discussed it with her uh, not long ago. And she remembers, like, I can't believe you remember this, that one of my first images, of course, I remember because it's traumatic. It's like her being thrown by a horse, hitting the floor, Mm. like the ground, like, and her teeth coming out, bleeding. She holding them, standing up and coming towards me like nothing's happened. Okay. <laughs> so that's my first image at age three. <laughs> and she was like, how can you remember that? I'm like, I think I can. <laughs> and then another image of my mom that was like, okay, this was like, that definitely was like things are not normal at the house was when I was 17. And in her 30s, she decided she was going to do taekwondo right? I remember going to her exam from red belt to black belt to the black stripe that they put in taekwondo because you cannot go to the black one because that's private, right? And so I remember her doing a sidekick over three guys in a ball. So she was doing a fly sidekick and then breaking out a piece of wood at the end, like somebody was holding the wood like this and she's like side kicking. Like something inside me went like, that's not normal. <laughs> 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 and your mom can do those things. So I grew up with this really force of nature. Mm. When it comes to these physical things, she's fearless. Like a few months ago, she was diving in Bolivia from one mountain to another. Like the woman is fearless when it comes to these things. And I think I grew up thinking that women could be physically tough in a place where it wasn't really, it was more of a macho society.
0: Mm. Well, it's so interesting in the context of the clothes you make, these, these sort of power suits for women who kind of fit the description of your mother.
2: Yeah, but even that jacket that I'm wearing is based on a jacket that she used to have. This outfit that I'm wearing is an alteration of an outfit that she would wear. It's like she would have that jacket with a matching skirt that matches this skirt in the same Mm. fabric with her initials and my dad initials embroidered. And I remember this suit very well. And she also influenced me in music. Mm. She she would start, okay, so you want to learn about rock and roll. We're going to listen to Little Richard and Chuck Berry. And she took me to my first music concert at age 12. So she was extremely open-minded. So I think that a lot of, like, I don't really do any drugs or any alcohol or any vices because she had a lot of experience in talking to me about things and being open-minded. She let me be free within her. She was very clever. As a teenager, she let me have a lot of parties at my house. I wouldn't be like, somebody would be drunk driving me Mm -hmm. or anything. So I was allowed to do the best parties always at my house because she could like, you know.
0: But it was, yeah, it was controlled.
2: It was controlled because she Mm -hmm. was there.
0: Mm -hmm. You seem to, aside from designing clothes for these strong women, you've also been informed or influenced, inspired by several. You've mentioned Elsa Schiaparelli who worked on amazing collections of, of knitwear. You've mentioned rei kawakubo yeah. i mean i'm curious I think she's like, also self-taught yeah do you feel like you somehow came into this role in part because of your mother because of this really strong role model this really strong figure
2: yeah i recently realized and i say as a joke but it's kind of true i have a hard time listening to men <laughs> or taking orders from men <laughs> <It's like, laughs> Even my friendships, I gravitate. My friendships and my friend usually are older women that have, a, except a stuff, but she's also a strong character. It's always a women with that, and there's something fascinating about these women, which is they have a great armor, mm. right? But the inside is very fragile. So it's it's the inside that is really really interesting to me. So I design with that metaphor. So I, everything that's close to the skin has mm-hmm. to be really really soft, and then I build out.
1: Mm.
0: And that fragility is a kind of strength in a way too. Yeah, a vulnerability. Yeah. Another strong woman in your life was your grandmother. Yeah, and and I know at age was it five you you went to live with her in, in Uruguay's capital yeah. where where you attended an English school. Cool.
2: Yes. The best school in a row I was in Montevideo and the, the British schools. And so it was all like studying the rural school or I went to live with my grandmother, which I, I did. And she spoiled me rotten. Uh, the spoiled side of me comes from, <laughs> from my grandma. And she passed away in 2004. And she was the source of this constant, warm, sweet love of, of you know, of everything's She'd gone through so many things in life. She she lost a child very young so to leukemia. So she mm. she knew what the real things that matter in life were, what's important and what's not important. There was a, a wisdom with her that didn't come from her speaking. It was from her attitudes. She was amazing.
0: Mm. I mean, it strikes me that between your experiences on the ranch mm-hmm. and just hearing this story about your grandmother, that, that I imagine from an early age you understood adversity, how to deal with adversity and roll with the punches.
2: Yes. I mean, you have to do that. I had a, a situation of danger with one of my children. You know, I think when they were, Olivia was like two years old, nothing too drastic, but she went in and we had a, a, at that time the other brand Candela and I was mm. in, in the um, office there in the showroom and my nanny calls me and says... Olivia's not feeling well. So I started walking. I was living in Chelsea. I was walking home. And then I hear my nanny crying and saying in Spanish, my baby's dying, my baby's dying. Mm. And then I remember just like going really fast running. And then time, talk about the expansion of time, just like kind of like, and at that moment, I am like, my brain becomes like this surgical thing that just like calls an ambulance, you know? And I tell her, Bring her down right now for a My dad was there, coincidental, uh, visiting, and I tell them, Bring her down right now. Mm. And I, I don't know how fast I made it, but I made it at a def, like I run like I've never run in my entire <laughs> life. And then I see my child mm. in an epileptic, you know, foaming, the eyes going up back in the mm. head. And I'm like holding her and notice she's breathing, right? And then I see it's amazing how humans behave. I see a guy that's looking at me, I see an ambulance. And I, the guy realized without me saying a word that he needs to stop that ambulance. He stops the ambulance in the middle of the avenue, and I go inside, (laughs) and they they stabilize the child. The once I'm in the ambulance, I'm like all in a matter of minutes, but it felt like eternity, and. Then in the ambulance, everything stabilized. I go to the hospital. Oh, it's fever epilepsy. It's very common in all children. And you're like, I nearly died. And you're telling me this is. <laughs> this is... But in that is a sense where it, my brain just does not, in that moment, I did not panic. Yeah. I was in like, this is what we do. So I have like an inner confidence of like, do not panic in danger situations. Like, mm. number one yeah. survival rule. This is what, I, I train my kids all the time. It's like, this is how you have to think because they're city kids. <laughs> like, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very different from the ranch.
2: Exactly.
0: Uh, when I was reading um, about your sort of background, I, I saw, aside from going to live with your, your grandmother in the city, your first international <laughs> urban <laughs> experience was Australia.
2: Yes. <laughs> I've been to Buenos Aires and to Chile, but mm-hmm. to really like, I wanted to live that experience was really important for me at 17, but not only the experience, like the materializing of the experience, because I realized at that age, at 17 years old, that if you put something in your mind, even if it sounds impossible, and everybody tells you you cannot do it, because I went to school, so I tell everybody, everyone, I want to live in Australia, because I knew that at one point in my life, I was going to be in Europe and the US, it seemed like a, like a realistic place i could end up but australia seems so far away from Uruguay. like if you it's like the opposite it's the same latitude opposite side of the planet mm. and i just told everybody it like just came up to my mind i want to go to australia i want to go to australia i want to go to Everybody's like you think you're 17 and your parents are going to let you go in australia <laughs> 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 like this and one friend of mine told me there was this scholarship to go to study in australia one place only so i applied i got it <laughs> then i presented the the presentation to to my parents my parents were divorced so i had to like deal with both so i presented right i was like so i want to go to australia i just want this scholarship da, 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 da. i don't know how but i convinced them and off i was to australia <laughs> and it changed my life mm. because where i grew up at that period things of course have changed there was pre globalization girls women wouldn't work for sure, after they finished university and people my age didn't work in the part of society where I was born. And in Australia, everybody my age was working. Mm -hmm. So I wanted that independence. And so I came back from that experience in Australia. And of course, we this anxiety through travel. And I told my mom, I, I want to do all my subjects. Uh, libre, it was called, meaning like you could do them at the end of the year. It was really difficult to do that, but I want to travel and I want to get a job. And I and my mom said, okay, fine. So I started my first job at 17. I was the first of my generation to do that, to have a proper job at mm. 17. Well, what was the job? Flower shop. Yeah. I saved money and I came to New York at age 18. And that Mm. was the first time I was in New York and I said, I'm going to live here.
0: Mm. And I know you had had dreams of New York after watching Cinderella and (laughs) kind of having these childhood imagination running wild.
2: Yes, I, it's funny because I learned how to read and write first in English than in Spanish. So that should have been a premonition of something, but I have this connection with places where i just land and i feel like i feel at home uh, or not the contrary happens too where i feel like i never want to come to this place again and new york was a place where i was like i'm gonna live here Mm -hmm. like i had no doubt at 18 Mm -hmm. i was like i'm gonna live here i knew it
0: and in your early 20s when you got here i understand you studied acting at a playhouse
2: in the neighborhood playhouse school of theater which it's really, it's a prestigious acting school. And I always say that my best performance was to convince my father to pay for it (laughs) (laughs) because it was like a gaucho. And this is after like trying a different few things, right? And Modeling. Modeling. And I went to communication school. It was great because he told me, fine, I'll pay for the tuition, but you have to figure out how to pay for yourself in New York. Mm. So I waitress and hostess and, you know... It's funny how you have chose the creative uh, life and immediately your standard of living goes down. <laughs> it's like. <psh>. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the journey to fashion, of course. You know, we sort of talked about the utilitarian element. Mm-hmm. I know when you were a young girl, you were also designing quinceanera dresses yes, for your friends.
2: Yes. And they were all short. It was like the opposite of the traditional. Even my quinceanera dress was like short and red, you know, and chiffon. with like beaded. It. it. was beautiful. And I matched the, the shoes. But yes, I've always had an inclination with sketching, drawing, and fashion, for sure. And, you, and
0: your grandmother and aunt had their clothes made by seamstresses. Simstress, and my mom, yeah. yeah.
2: One seamstress would make the clothes for my whole family. Oh, wow. Yeah, if she had an atelier, but I thought that. She was amazing. I mean, the quality of these pieces. Are it's like couture. Couture, yeah, because yeah. it's made to measure.
0: Wow. When you came to New York, eventually you landed in fashion, I understand. You, you were working for a, a designer?
2: Yes. I worked for a designer... But before that, I've always, I actually, it's funny because we're talking about this because it just came up that I had this period where, and I actually wrote it today and it's something I posted where I was just like this fever. I was just painting everywhere. Like I was just painting. I would paint like the way I got into the acting school because I had no background in, I studied communications, but I didn't have any background in the creatives. I went to my audition interview with a t-shirt that I painted myself. And so I knew they were going to ask me about the t-shirt because it was pretty cool. And, <laughs> and he did, the, the, the director asked me, what's the t-shirt? And I said, I, I did it myself. So the creative part was on the table. So it's always been sort of a medium. It was clothes. Mm. Was for, so before I even I was painting stuff, like I was painting clothes, I was painting denim. Mm. And then I started working for this designer by accident. And I realized that I had... Like a facility for it, but also the business side too.
0: Yeah, because you, you worked in a sales room.
2: Yeah, and my first proper proper job oh, was as a director of sales for a showroom. Wow. Yeah, that was like my first proper fashion job.
0: I think it's so interesting because now your your brand has two shops and one in London and New York.
2: Three shops. Three. Yeah, oh. we have a shop in Harrods. That's oh, okay. Yeah.
0: So, and these London and New York ones are sort of attached to or near yeah. hotels. Yeah, Service is such an element of what you do. And so I was wondering how you view this notion of service as the foundation or, or sort of a core of your brand.
2: It's one of the number one main values besides uh, I would say the two top values are long-term view and sustainability and service is is something that I think it's key, it's what we do. Uh, We're serving our women and and I tell this to the team all the time and this is why the proximity to these great hotels is because that's a high standard of of service and our client expects an intelligent service from us and we need to provide that. Mm. It needs to be seamless.
0: Your company is what might be called luxury we'll get into talking about what 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 actually luxury is but it's um,
2: confusing these days (laughs)
0: yeah prior to starting it though you had a a company that was sort of more mid-market candela how did you ultimately decide to and and you did that you were Mm -hmm. you started that in 2004 and and basically did that for 10 years how and why did you decide to leave that and enter the the luxury space
2: yeah I started Candela with two other partners, $700 each. It wasn't really, you know, only my vision. It was a combination of my other partners too as well. And we did that. This is how... We paid our bills in New York and we, we did the first year, we went from zero to a to million dollars, which was pretty decent back in 2004. And so, you know, we were in the shmata and, <laughs> <laughs> and there you are. And these, um contemporary market was emerging. There were all these boutiques. And even through 2008, we continued to grow. But it was after I inherited my dad's ranch in 2011 that I had to go take care of this business. Cause this was like, you know, my legacy, the legacy I wanted to leave my kids. So I had mm. to start paying attention mm. to it. And I started to see the connection of what my family have been doing to what I was, and there was a big disconnect. And the department stores wanted cheaper products and cheaper prices. And I knew this had a cost. It had there's yeah. I tell my children this morning, because they're like, Oh, I just bought these turtlenecks in X fashion, you know, fast fashion and I'm like, Okay. But this turtleneck is basically has a cost to the planet. Maybe it was a cheaper cost to you, but it has a cost to the planet. So I this way we were doing things wasn't working and it mm. didn't felt but it was what I knew. So if you've been doing something for ten years, there's still a bit of um Fear, right? And so we did it again. We started over. Um, and
0: you completely left that business.
2: Yes, it was for a while doing uh, some private label, but we we it's mm. dormant.
0: Mm. So luxury. Yeah. <laughs> that that word. How how do you define it?
2: I say it this way: If you want to call yourself a luxury designer. You have to understand where everything comes from. Where the fabric is coming from, who is making it. You have to understand everything. How it's made. How are these fibers sourced? Why are you using this fiber versus this fiber? So for me, luxury takes a deeper knowledge into how the product is made because it's not just for the end result of the visual pleasure. It has to have a long-standing, durability.
0: How do you think about luxury in relationship to time?
2: It needs to be timeless, in my view. If you're using a really expensive cashmere that is sourced the proper way, uh, that the yarn is sourced from the proper uh, place in Mongolia, and you want to make sure that that coat is going to last so you're not going to make something that is too avant-garde or trendy.
0: Mm. And when I hear the word timeless, I think about, of course, style and something looking good through time, mm-hmm. but also something that lasts in terms of quality. Mm-hmm. How do you ensure as a designer that that you're making things that are are going to last, that will?
2: Yeah, you know, there's obviously some pieces that are more fragile than others because we're now beating Geodes or things like that. But that blazer is from the first collection I've ever did for GH. Mm-hmm. It's actually the first sample. The coat that I came wearing was from three years ago. These boots are probably from, I don't know, two years ago. Like and it it has to last. It has to I have to still wear that same coat from ten years from now. And I want it to feel and look in a certain way and and, and, and have that quality. Mm. So it's a combination of materials. It's pretty close to to how you build things, materials and craftsmanship.
1: Mm.
0: This idea of keeping things forever too. I mean, as a company, you have to sell enough to sustain, but at the same time, know that you're kind of taking a long game, that you're yeah. going to have customers who over a long period yeah. of time will keep coming back.
2: Well, I, I actually think that we're a company that controls our growth. We don't supply the demand. The company could be double the size that it's today, but that's not in the long term plan view of of what we mm. do, especially because there's a lot of things that I want to figure out on how to create our product with the less impact possible to the environment. Cause that's the number one priority, like 10 years from now when there's uh, water shortages, like, I mean, who cares about fashion really? And so it, I'm really, it's very important for me that we create this this true luxury brand, but that it has a responsible way of, of looking into the, into the future. Mm. Because the old model doesn't work, just doesn't. So this is what I'm trying to figure out. And so because of that, we also restrict the growth into a healthy growth that we can obviously continue doing business, that our investors are happy and that we we can move forward But with our values and ethics. Um, I do think that the big moment for us is really in the future because I feel that all the luxury brands are very focused right now, the big names on youth. And I think that, you know, they're missing to talking to a a client, a woman. And when I think about when I was in my 20s, half of my life ago, there are very few brands from my 20s that I want to wear now Mm -hmm. when I'm in my mid 40s, right? So... I travel around the world and I'm in, you know, I'm in Beijing and I see these, these young girls wearing these really high end luxury brands. What are they going to wear when they're in their forties? My brand.
0: (laughs) Do you think that smaller and slower is kind of a new, a new model that's emerging?
2: Yeah. Yes. I like, I feel comfortable thinking long-term. I mean, you know. We have to make sure I am alive. But even if that's not the case, <laughs> I have a plan for that too. Mm. So it's like, it's really about the long term for me.
0: I want to talk about the environment. That's a subject that you're very vocal on and have been very involved with. Yeah. Your your last fashion show was carbon neutral. Yeah. You work with an advisory group, EcoAct, that calculated the emissions yeah. and determined the necessary sort of offset amounts. You relied on, local models so you didn't fly any talent in there was minimal electricity like no hair dryers (laughs) what led you to to being so environmentally focused i mean you were talking about and using the word sustainability in a true way before a lot of luxury brands jumped on the bandwagon it wasn't really considered like a luxury or quote chic thing to do Yeah, i was
2: told not to speak about it too I mean, it's the most important thing that we're facing and it, this company was formed with those values, but it was really the 2017, seeing the drought in Africa and realizing the unfairness of it all, right? The people that did the least are suffering the most. Now we're all going to pay in the developing world too. So it's, it's just this unfairness and I just have this, I guess it's the survival instinct again, like I don't get paralyzed with fear. Like I, I have to move forward because the problem with the issue that we're facing is that, this is my point of view, of course, is that our brain is, most of the brains are, are wired to, to not, they cannot take so much fear. So they can't process it, right? So it's very, how do you communicate the immensity of the issue, right? That we're in, because it's it's paralyzing. I mean, it's paralyzing. And you also you don't want to be in an attitude where it's like it's done, mm-hmm. like whatever. Glug 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 glug, <laughs> you know? It's like, yeah. no. Yeah. Uh, you have a responsibility. So I I think that I can't justify my love for what I do. Right. And of course, I have a responsibility to our employees, but I cannot justify it. We're really not looking at at a solution, really a a solution, a new model and a new model that can be scaled for some cases or parts of the things that we do are already used. And the carbon neutrality, we were the first, but it wasn't that we did it for doing it for being the first. It was really.
0: I mean, Gucci came right after Carings now. You know, on that. It's
2: one of the things you do, but yeah. the, how we came to that, it was building the store in London with Norma Foster in a sustainable way. And then when we were meeting for what's the direction for the show, creatively speaking, I said, I want to know how much is the carbon footprint for a show? Because mm. nobody had that number. And I gave a very specific Example, I went to the doctor and my doctor told me that my cholesterol was like 280 something. And he said, it's not your nutrition because you eat pretty healthy. It's your lack of exercise. I started training. And one of the upsides was that my cholesterol go went down and then my amazing six pack. But <laughs> <laughs> I wanted that number. I needed mm. that data. How can we change something if we don't know the information? So we did it for that to know how much was mm. it and it didn't impact anything yeah we subtracted things right but the results of the show you didn't you you need less that's the whole point the whole point of the stores and of course we're measuring the carbon footprint this show as well it was like it's like the beginning yeah Of how to, I
0: I love this idea of uh, you know the the you know helping the world get a six pack almost like like we all need to be
2: like if yeah let's go down in good shape. (laughs) It's like
0: (laughs) the thing you've done that I find the most really amazing is is your collaboration with TIPA um, on the biodegradable garment bags.
2: Yeah, so it wasn't there wasn't anything that didn't exist and we had to create these garment bags that biodegrade. And so they didn't exist. And it took us a year and a half to do them with Tipa. And then now other brands can use it. Mm. And then, but changing the the cardboard that, you know, all hangers in fashion, people don't realize that when you ship things, everything gets shipped. If it's flat packed or is it hanged, it gets shipped on a plastic hanger. Those plastic hangers, 99% of them end up in a landfill, So, which also changed those hangers to recycled cardboard. Mm. So that is something that like, you can't continue yeah. adding, something that's not needed.
0: I was reading a United Nations report that the fashion industry is responsible for around 10% of all global greenhouse gas emissions yeah. and that if it were to continue to grow at its current rates, that it will use more than a quarter of the world's annual carbon budget by 2050. How does fashion contend with that?
2: Well, there's also this report that we're the second polluter, which is, you know, not completely proven that we're the second polluters. I like to simplify it because maybe I'm a country girl, (laughs) but it's an energy problem, right? Everything that we do takes energy. Talking here takes energy. And where are we getting this energy from? There's three main sources we use energy right now: fossil fuels, coal, and renewables. Fossil fuels, pardon my English, is dead shit from billions of years ago or hundred millions years ago. But it's still dead organisms, right? Everything that has lived on this planet for hundred, maybe billion, that's been dead, buried. We're taking it out, burning it, producing it and putting it in the atmosphere. It sounds like a really bad idea. (laughs) So that's basically what we're doing. We're taking something that's supposed to be dead and buried and putting it up there. And so we need to change empirically, immediately, the way we are using our energy. And I think from the solutions, I mean, I'm not an expert. Nor I play one on TV, <laughs> so I, I think it's it's the en- it's an energy problem that we need to address immediately. Besides renewable and renewables in the EU in the UK, they have renewables as burning wood. That's not good either. Mm-hmm. It's, I'm talking about solar and wind and and safe nuclear, uh, uh, safe nuclear that's here. Like one pellet of uranium of one centimeter length by one centimeter diameter has the same energy that one ton of coal. Mm. So it's an energy problem.
0: Yeah. We talked luxury. How do you define sustainability? I know that's another sort of watchword for you.
2: How do you define sustainability?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I think right now it's more a matter of our accountability, mm. right? And not saying things that like thinking through before talking, like vegan leather is not sustainable. Let's be clear. Okay. Because if it's made out of petroleum, it's not sustainable. It's not biodegradable. If it's made about something else that's biodegradable. So let's not confuse terms, right? It's vegan leather. It's vegan. But that doesn't mean it's sustainable. I don't believe in industrial farming. I don't think that's good. And I don't think we can feed 11 million people with it's also my, my perspective with meat. But as far as I know it, leather is a byproduct of the meat industry. Not all t- tanneries are tanned the same way. Not all leathers have chemicals. So we have to be careful how we move into things and not, you know, slowly by the stones of mm. really thinking through. You know, if it's if you're a vegan and this is a principle, that's great. But let's it's not confuse with that being sustainable, like the messages. And also, I think we need to think about cotton, right? It absorbs, I think the measurement is like something like 25 tons of water to do one pair of jeans. Of lit- it's like like the measurements of, um, uh, of absorption of water for pairs of jeans where you have other fibers that are much smarter, like linen. So... There's a lot of things to think about that are, you know.
0: I'm sorry for wearing jeans right now. But as long as they're not
2: new or just keep.
0: Yeah, I've had them for a long time. Okay, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) i them on eBay. You've also, and and your husband Austin, have been very involved in philanthropy, whether it's with with Save the Children, Planned Parenthood, our our children's trust. Could you talk about the role of philanthropy in the context of, of how you view your work? think about your work
1: well
2: my husband is one of those people that have done a lot and really doesn't talk about it you know he was really involved in a lot of projects in, in 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 africa and in bhutan he built a lot of schools with with save the children and he's always whenever i've seen him the most passionate and engaged has always been in humanitarian work and not actually just writing a, a check that that's something great to do but actually getting involved and, and thinking and going through the logistics. And it was, for me, doing what we do at Guerrilla Hearst is not something that we set up to do, let's be philanthropic. It was more like there's a subject that is bothering me, like the drought in Africa. So can, how, how can we do to help that? And we have this platform. So it's the same thing as the recent thing we did for for Yemen. Mm-hmm. We were following the Yemen conflict, for a long time, and then when the Syrian war started to get in the news again, Yemen lost attention. And uh, but that doesn't mean that it's that over. It's over, yeah. And because the news are so short, so instead of being frustrated about something, I I need to do something. So it's like I don't like to be a frustrated woman.
0: So you sold a bunch of handbags.
2: I, we sell a lot, of, a bunch of handbags, and mm. it's really I get so passionate. And I feel so good, and it really propels. It's like uh,
0: I wish people could see your face right now. It it, it, (laughs) it was like an emotional wash
2: because it's it's like you know when I remember reading an article this summer on on Yemen and I started crying and who who are my tears going to help? No one. Mm. So you know we talked about it with the team. We talked to Save. I'm now in the board of Save, Um, and so they were welcoming the help because they're the only large. NGO that's able to go to Yemen. It's very dangerous to be in Yemen and they're allowed to be there and operate there. So it's like, it made complete sense. So in Christmas, we gave a whole week of, of all the net proceeds of our stores and e-com to save. And it was amazing, it was amazing. Mm. So those things really just the whole team up and- I'm sure. It is really, it, it is really bonding and building. Mm.
0: I want to end our conversation on mindfulness. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we've been talking, you know, kind of all over um, the the intersection of time and and you know the environment and philanthropy. I know, I know you practice yoga mm-hmm. and you meditate. Yeah, could you elaborate a little bit on your practices when it comes to mindfulness? How you how you slow down? How you deal with yeah. the rush of the day to day and the the traumas happening every minute before us
2: yes so it's interesting because i was subject to this context before it was like fashion because my mother was a zen buddhist through the martial arts she got into buddhism and of course she being hardcore she gets into the most hardcore of all of them that's like cultish like zen it's like very rigorous very very rigorous and so i being you know like you kind of revel to what your parents do, you know, if they were like, you know, strong Catholics, you're like nothing to do with Catholic. My mom was like an advent to Zen Buddhism. So I wasn't for a long period of my life, I rejected everything that was, you know, meditation, per se. But my husband is really involved in this space. And he was one of the first investors at Headspace and in different mindful companies. And I am like, every time like a a uh, Westerner gets involved with Eastern practices. I give it to like the Americans that they can make money with something that's free because meditation is actually close your eyes and breathe. Right? <laughs> but there are, there are all these apps right now, geniuses. It's like, I love it. Americans are a genius at marketing. And so I think I got my obsessive gene from my mother. So I decided to try one of these um, investments my, my husband was doing. News specifically. And so it was a headband that would read your your brain waves. And, mm-hmm. and so I used it for a whole year nonstop. And I saw a difference creatively, functionality. Uh, and then I stopped. Like I did one year, like every day religiously, and then I stopped. And then I did six months nothing. And I could see the difference. Like, and actually I could see the difference. And then I did TM. And I just, since, uh, I think it's going to be two years, I'm doing TM every day. Mm. and For somebody in a creative job is, I think, key. But let me be clear. I mean, if you're an asshole, doesn't matter how much you meditate, you're still an asshole. <laughs> you're an aware <laughs> asshole. I don't, I don't think because you meditate, you're a better person. <laughs> it's like, I think it's, it's better for your mind, mm. for sure.
0: And... Obviously, technology has just taken over our lives. Yeah. Um, I mean, you mentioned Headspace. It's like people are using their devices to
2: meditate. <laughs> meditate. It's, exactly. it's a
0: strange thing. You you have mentioned that you don't look at your phone during the first hour of the day. Yeah. You, you hate your smartphone.
2: I hate it. I hate it. So I bought this Nokia on eBay that I've never ever was able to <laughs> like to make function. So it's like it's a war with my phone. <laughs>
0: But but and you're determined that your kids won't have smartphones. No, they don't.
2: They don't. They don't. You have no idea how hard was my job cuz they wanted to have a music player, right? Cuz they're they're teenage
0: ele- twin girls. Yeah.
2: Yeah, preteen, teenage twin girls wanting to have a music player. And so I basically went with Sony with like the new version of a Walkman, Mm -hmm. which means you have to download music to the device, etc. But it's like I was not going to get them, you know, Mm. a phone that plays music and has access to the internet. And they love it. They're listening. I put also my music there too.
0: (laughs) What do you think being disconnected from those devices can do? On
2: our... oh, I tested it this summer because I went to a retreat where no devices, nothing, and some days were silent for a week. Um, good news, you can stop your phone addiction like nothing. Like <laughs> after two days, you don't, it's not like a substance. So it's actually in two days, you're not even thinking about it. I mean, so, of course, you're miscommunicating with your children, but it's not an addiction that is
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, your dopamine kind right. of relaxes.
0: Yeah, the rush fades.
2: Yeah. We can get over this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I also just was so fascinated in reading a piece by Robin Givon yeah, from a year ago um, in the Washington Post when she was writing about your work. And it made me think about everything we've talked about today. And it, it's funny because she was like kind of describing you but and the clothes you make. But in a way, she was also describing your client. She writes... Hers clothes quietly murmur. You could change the world, and I loved that. I, I thought that that actually really does say a lot about the experiences you've had and the message you're trying to quietly send or murmur through yeah. through your clothing.
2: I I want to make my client happy, and I want to go to bed knowing that i try my fucking best <laughs> basically that's what i tried to do and i realized my job lies down in one thing only you know there's always good and bad happening at the same time right so you have to make sure that the good turns into great and the bad doesn't turn into disaster <laughs> that's all i'm doing every day
0: <laughs> i think we'll end there thanks <laughs> yes. Gabby. this is great It's is it it wonderful having you here today
2: thank you thank you for having me <laughs>
0: Extra thanks to our Season 3 sponsor, Longa, the German watchmaker redefining the limits of micromechanical engineering and creating tomorrow's classics. You can find more about Longa at their website, A-L-A-N-G-E-S-O-E-H-N-E.com. And thank you for listening. You can find more episodes of the Time Sensitive podcast on our website, timesensitive.fm, or on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv.